turn in your Bible to Galatians chapter 1. We're going to begin uh, the book of Galatians. And uh, it's a, an exciting little book, little letter, actually. Uh, I always love to read it. It has, uh, historically, it has, has meant uh, so much to the, uh, to the church, uh, especially since the Reformation. I think uh, this is one of the, one of the books that, that essentially started the Reformation. Uh, I mean, really, um, Martin Luther was, Luther was um, uh, immersed in it. I think I uh, wrote a commentary on it as well. Uh, but uh, it's a, it's a very, has been a very influential book. So uh, I hope to today to look at, look at it, uh, not exactly in a new light, but uh, to try to try to bring together in this first sermon on it, kind of what the whole book is about. So that as we look at the parts, then we'll see, uh, we'll see the way that they always, th- they all fit together, and uh, form a, a picture of, of really. What we don't think of, we don't think of Galatians as being a book about uh, about uh, of new creation, but that's exactly what it is. And um, I'll try to I'll try to uh, unpack that and, and um, in this introduction, kind of give you an idea of what I think the whole where the whole book is going, and how something as kind of as strange as circumcision fits into this bold vision of, of new creation. Okay, so uh, bear with me. I'm going to try to pull all of that together and, um, and make, make some good sense out of, out of the book. So let's, let's pray and get started. Uh, Father, we're grateful for this time. We're grateful, Father, for your spirit that uh, has been poured out upon us. And we're thankful, Father, uh, for, the, for the great works that you have done uh, in us and uh, we just are, are so grateful for uh, your your presence and the way that you've changed our lives. And we just pray, Father, that uh, you would be with us today as we look at your word. We pray that uh, you would help us as we seek to understand. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I mentioned, uh, along with Romans, uh, whose content somewhat overlaps with Galatians, Galatians has cha- uh, shaped the church's understanding of the gospel uh, in, in a profound way. This is especially true since the Reformation. The message of grace apart from works of the law has been the main theme from Martin Luther onward. Though we may need to nuance that just a bit uh, in light of a close reading of Galatians, this has been the refrain for centuries and has served as a summary of the gospel, a kind of shorthand ever since, and its endurance as a summary of the gospel uh, is owing largely to this book. The book of Galatians is a situational letter, and the situation that brought forth the letter needs to be explored before we can determine what the letter means and says. The greeting of this letter is the shortest of Paul's letters, and its message is very blunt, and that's partly reflected in the, in the short opening of this letter. It's very short if you compare it with the other epistles. The people have been bewitched, or at least they're in danger of being so. This is Paul's charge in chapter 3, verse 1. They are not obeying the truth, chapter 5, verse 7. 
But what is the situation, and why would Paul make such a charge? Is he just being uptight, worried about nothing? Apparently, Paul has f had founded a group of churches within the region of Galatia, what we know of as modern Turkey, during his early missionary travels. In 2, 10, 2 1 through 10, we learn that Paul had gone up to Jerusalem to meet with those who had become apostles before him. In other words, uh, Peter and James and John and all of those who were in Jerusalem. He had met with the apostles and put before them the gospel he had been preaching among the Gentiles. They affirmed him in his understanding and had asked him only to do one thing, to remember the poor, which he was always apt to do. After this, Paul likely went northward and sometime after the Jerusalem meeting founded a group of churches in Galatia in accordance with his tradition of not building on another man's foundation, as we know from 1 Corinthians. So these were churches that were planted directly through the preaching of the Apostle Paul. After he departed, moving on, thinking that they had been running well, he receives word that a group of missionaries, which is what I'll call them, they, historically they've been called Judaizers. It's not exactly correct. Uh, they're not just Jews, they're Jewish Christians who have, who have come along and they're claiming authority from Jerusalem. They arrive and they teach what Paul calls another gospel. But just what was this other good news that really wasn't? The good news they were bringing was apparently that these Gentiles needed to become Jews by undergoing circumcision. And by doing so, they would then be in the family of Abraham. They would be children of Abraham. After all, didn't Abraham believe and then get circumcised? Why should we not do the same thing? Thus, the question for the Galatians was whether they were going to be just a new group of Jewish proselytes who added Jesus, or were they going to become a group that was neither Jew Jewish nor pagan, something altogether new, like a new creation, fitted for the new thing that God was doing in the Messiah. And this is exactly what we will see he's getting at in this book. This is the, the, the whole reason that he is emphasizing new creation in this book is because he says neither uncircumcision nor circumcision is anything. It doesn't have any meaning because you're a new creation, right? He's after this not Jew, not pagan, new creation. This is the image that he's, uh, that he's putting forth throughout this book. But why was Paul so concerned about circumcision throughout the letter? Didn't God command it? It wasn't that the act itself was either good or bad or that God should never have commanded it. No, it is that circumcision represents something far more than just the act itself. Once again, it reflects identity. It says this, I am Jewish and Torah observant. That's what circumcision says. It speaks. It's not just the act. It is identity. And most importantly, it says, I am not one of those Gentiles. That's what it says as well. The act of, of circumcision represents one's identity as a Jew. And they are really concerned about it. 
any Jew, um, today as well, would be concerned about circumcision. If you are not properly circumcised, you're not in the family. Okay? That's it. Identity is behind it. Furthermore, it obligated one to keep the whole law. Galatians 5.3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. And this is the point and one of the underlying reasons why Paul is so adamant. Circumcision and, and Torah keeping in general was intentionally designed as a means of identifying one as not a Gentile, not one of those. It functioned as a wall to keep the Gentiles out and to keep the Jews in. It is that dividing wall of separation spoken of in Ephesians 2.13 that kept Jew and Gentile apart. And circumcision represented that wall. Once we understand this about circumcision and the law, we will understand it's not simply about works grace, but about identity markers of the new family of God. And what God has done in Jesus is to create a new family, not through fleshly circumcision, but through the circumcision of the heart, the very thing that circumcision itself was pointing to all along. Moses, looking ahead to it, says to Israel, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 and the Lord God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. See also Jeremiah 4, which talks about the same thing. God is creating a family with different identity markers. One in particular, but it stands for the other markers as well. Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. 6.15, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. What is the new identity marker in the Messiah? He says it there in 5.6, faith. Faith in the Messiah working through love is what identifies you as being in the new family of Abraham. New creation, new covenant, new identity, new freedom. Would they be characterized by circumcision and Torah observance? A yoke of slavery, Paul says? Or would they be characterized by being in the Messiah? Freedom to be part of the worldwide family of Abraham. It is this theme, the creation of a family for Abraham. This will be the central theme of the letter. Who is in the family of Abraham? It's a question of identity. And Paul will argue that if the Gentile Galatians submit to circumcision, they will be undoing what God has accomplished in Jesus. Going back to the stoicheia, as we'll see later, the stoicheia of the world, to which we will also return. If they submit to circumcision, they will be creating two families, circumcised and uncircumcised, with the uncircumcised, of course, being inferior. The requirement of circumcision for family entry would therefore, therefore nullify the promise to Abraham that God was going to create one family consisting of Jew and Gentile. 
The requirement of, this is very important, because if you, if you understand this one principle, you'll understand almost everything he says in this letter. The requirement of circumcision for family entry, right, to get into the family of Abraham, if it requires circumcision, it would nullify the promise to Abraham that God was going to create one family consisting of Jew and Gentile. In other words, the requirement of circumcision as a family identity marker served to prevent God's purposes in the world going forward through the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. Think of it this way. God's plan was to create one family. In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. One family. So there's, there's Abraham, and the nations are going to come in, and it's going to be one family, as we learn, in the Messiah. Paul goes forth preaching, like Peter does initially, and likely goes back to after his rebuke by Paul that we learn about in this letter. Paul is preaching, and as we know from Acts and from, from this book as well, he's preaching that there's no requirement for Gentiles to enter the family except faith in the Messiah. He's going to argue that the same spirit, because the spirit, the same spirit is outpoured on Gentiles as was outpoured on Jews, even though the, the uh, Gentiles had not been circumcised, is, is proof that nothing else is required. No circumcision is required. Because the Spirit, the Spirit is what is going to come in the last days. The Spirit is what is going to be outpoured on all flesh. I mean, look at Joel. Joel says, in the last days, my, the Spirit will be outpoured. Okay? We see this in Acts. The, the Spirit comes and is poured out upon all the nations. Paul uses that to argue that because of that, nothing further is needed. You don't need to go get circumcised uh, in order to have the Spirit. And the Spirit is that eschatological sign that God's new age has begun. Then, so Paul goes out preaching, and then along comes this group saying that Paul is wrong. That in order to get into this family, one must be circumcised. Probably using the scriptures to back it up. And you can imagine how it would go. Didn't Abraham believe and then get circumcised, right? He did, actually. That's how it worked, right? He believed, chapter 15, declared righteous, 17, circumcision. They're likely using the scripture as a way to say, this is what we should do. If you want to be children of Abraham, you've got to get circumcised like him. Paul's answer is emphatically no. For more than one reason, but he will argue this from a practical perspective. The Spirit was given to all without distinction when both Paul and Peter preached the crucified and risen Lord. Now, how is Paul going to approach this issue? Two ways. Number one, he will make a claim uh, to legitimate and equal apostleship with the other apostles. And he will make a claim to a proper understanding of the scriptures and the good news. Okay, the first one will be our focus today, Paul's claim to apostleship. And then the second will flow from that. We'll focus on it for the rest of the book, really. Uh, so, because what he's going to do is he's going to use the scriptures as a way to explain why circumcision is not necessary. Now, this sounds like a, a really boring and inconsequential topic for us as well. I mean, why, why are we concerned about circumcision? But you'll see that actually 
uh, it does matter. I think it matters tremendously. This is part of the reason, though, that this book has been turned into a book about uh, not works and uh, grace, but not works, because it actually is about circumcision, and we as Gentiles don't find that really relevant. And so it, in an attempt to make it relevant, I think people have kind of taken it in a direction that kind of goes in that direction, but, but not exactly. So anyway, I'm going to try to try to make it a bit interesting. All right, let's look at um, Galatians 1, uh, 1 through 9, and then we'll see what, what Paul does here. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from, the, from this present evil age, according to the will of, God our, uh, of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort, to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Here in the opening greetings of the letter, Paul asserts his claim to apostleship by noting the source of his apostleship in a chiasm, A-B-B-A, A-B-B-A. So it's actually quite poetic. It is not from men nor through the agency of a man, but through the agency of Jesus Christ and from God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. Not from men, from God the Father. Not through a man, but through Jesus Christ. A, B, B, A. That's the way he does it. He does this a lot. Paul is not simply saying the same thing in two ways, one negative and one positive. No, he is saying this. His apostleship does not have its origin in men. On the other hand, it does have its origin in God the Father. His apostleship was not given to him through the agency of a man. It's important in that, um, in that verse, it says, nor through a man. It doesn't, doesn't say through man. It, it's, um, it's a way of saying, I think he has in mind here the idea of when someone is, is commissioned, an apostle, an apostle means one who is sent. Okay? So when someone is commissioned to go on, to, on a journey or to go on a mission, they lay hands on them. So a man would lay hands and send you out, right? And so he says, it doesn't, my, my apostleship does not come through a man. A man did not lay hands on me and then send me out. On the other hand, it was given him through Jesus Christ. And I think he means Jesus Christ personally commissioned him to go out. He sent him out. Okay? Here we see several important distinctions. The source of all things including the mission, especially the mission here of Paul, is God the Father, not Jesus. 
The source of all things is God the Father. And, and he, makes this, he makes this distinction. We, don't, we kind of read through it as if it's just a, a theological flourish or something. But the source of all things is God the Father, and the one through whom God does his work is Jesus, the anointed king. This is what we've seen in the Gospels as well. God the Father sent him. Right? It's God-centric, and Jesus is the one who is the Messiah. He's accomplishing the work. Later in the letter, we'll see how the Spirit comes into this great work, which the Father is accomplishing, and it will be fully Trinitarian. But now, as often, the Father and the Messiah are front and center. Now, why does any of this matter in the letter? Is this just a theological treaty, treatise uh, where Paul is simply laying out Trinitarian theology? Or is Paul going somewhere with the argument? Apparently, Paul's opponents, those with the other gospel, had sought, uh, had sought to, uh, to downplay Paul's credentials as an apostle. They had likely been saying that Paul wasn't truly an apostle. After all, he uh, was not among the pillars that Jesus sent out when he was ministering on earth. He only became apostle an apostle secondhand, that is, through the agency of a man. Someone must have laid hands on him, sent him out, but he wasn't a true apostle. He was not among those from Jerusalem uh, who were the pillars. Thus he asserts that this is not at all the case, and he will further elaborate on the divine origin of his apostleship and calling uh, later on in verse 15. Echoing the call narrative of, Genesis, of Jeremiah 1, he says in verse 15, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. What is he doing here? He's saying that it is God himself who has called him into this ministry, and he has done it through the agency of Jesus the Messiah. In fact, it is this God who raised Jesus from the dead, he says in verse 1. And Paul has witnesses, all the brethren who are with me, he says in verse 2. He has witnesses that he's, he truly does have the apostleship from God. To the churches in, of Galatia, so it's, it's, a mul it's multiple churches in the region that he likely founded. The next section, verses 3 through 5, give us an indication of where Paul is going with this letter. And it's an interesting section, one that's easily overlooked in our desire to get to the meat of what Paul says. Paul gives his standard greeting, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, and then he adds this programmatic statement about Jesus, and this is programmatic for the rest of the letter, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever, amen. What does this mean? We seem to know what it means that he gave himself for our sins, but we often fail to take seriously the next phrase, that he might deliver us from this present evil age. However, we should not disconnect these two. The crucifixion, Jesus giving himself over for our sins, was not an end unto itself. It was so that we might be delivered from this present evil age. I spoke about this some within our discussion of Mark, how Jesus was actually bringing in the new age, the age to come, what we often call eternal life, resurrection, the life of the age to come. This present age, 
characterized as it is by evil, is coming to an end. And the end of the present evil age has been effected by the cross of Jesus, by him giving himself over for our sins. Remember when we looked at Mark 13 and its parallel in Matthew 24, one of the disciples said, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your parousia and the end of the age? And, and then Jesus goes on to explain how the temple will be destroyed, and that will be the sign that the end of the age has come. What Paul is saying here is that the end of the age, the end of this present evil age, for you who believe on Jesus, has come to an end in the death of Jesus. And God is now building the new age. Okay? So what Paul is saying here in Galatians 1 is that the, this end of the age was accomplished through the self-giving death of Jesus. Of course, his resurrection is assumed and explicitly mentioned in verse 1, but he puts it here that the death is what brought about the deliverance of uh, our deliverance from this present evil age. And this is going to be programmatic for the letter as a whole. When Paul says that the death of Jesus is bringing about the deliverance of his people from this present evil age, he is talking about new creation with a new humanity, the new family of Abraham inhabiting it. The old creation with the old humanity is passing away, but those who are in the Messiah, the new humanity, represent a brand new creation that exists outside of this present evil age and lives where? in the age to come, no longer enslaved by the old creation and its lusts. Sometimes, uh, sometimes I would say, we have to put on our figurative spectacles to understand what he, what he says here. What Jesus has accomplished by his death is nothing less than brand new creation that God was intending to bring about all along. And to be delivered from this present evil age means that though you technically live in this world, your mode of operation is to be in accordance with the age to come. The age to come, the age of the resurrection. God is preparing you and me for the age to come. And we are to live, as Paul says, when he's raised us up and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Right? So... We are to live in this present evil age, but delivered out of it. And it's, a, it's an interesting concept, but it, it's, um, I think it's exactly what he means, that we are to inhabit a space within this present evil age where we are delivered out of it. Paul says in Ephesians that God has raised us up. and seat, In other words, he's resurrected us, and he's seated us in the heavenly places in Christ. Not in the future, but now. He's not talking about dying and going to heaven here. He's talking about a different space that we are to inhabit in Christ. That in the ages to come, he says, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then he says, for grace you've been saved. These are the riches. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, we participate in the age to come in anticipation of the resurrection. And this is training for that world. And this is the hope that we have, the resurrection of our bodies and life in the age to come. And this is what Paul says has been accomplished by the death of Jesus and his resurrection. 
But how does this relate to the original topic that I was discussing at the beginning, circumcision? Two ways. And I hope this helps make sense of, of what's going on here. It does to me. It makes, makes perfect sense in my head, but uh, I hopefully it will in yours as well. Circumcision belongs to this present evil age, not as evil in itself, but in that it was part of the preparatory time in which God would prepare the world to receive the Messiah and then would bring about the circumcision of the heart. Circumcision belongs to a time of preparation, but not to the fullness of time. Galatians 4.3, in the same way we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the stoicheia of the world. I use the term because there's no good way to translate it. Stoicheia. Some call it elementary principles of the world or something like some vague notion. But um, he's, he's talking about circumcision and the law belonging to enslaving us to themselves when we were children. And, and the implication is we've gone away, from, we've gone past that. We've gone out of the stoicheia now. We're not enslaved by them, including the law, uh, the, the titulary gods of, of all the pagans. These are, also, uh, these are also the stoicheia. We've come out of that. Verse 9, 4, 9. But now that you have, have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless stoicheia of the world? whose slaves you want to be once more. He's clearly saying, if you get circumcised and then you're obligated to keep the law, you're going to be going back to the weak and worthless stoicheia. That's what he means. In both places, he's talking about coming under the law and he's, he equates this to being enslaved to the stoicheia. They are weak and worthless, especially in the light of Messiah. And he means they're weak and worthless in the sense that they can't do anything to, uh, to, to accomplish Defeating, of the, defeating the flesh, right? What can, what can circumcision in the law do to, to work on your heart? Nothing, right? Can't do anything. And if the people of Galatia submit themselves to circumcision in all that it entails, they will be submitting to slavery. And relating to this present evil age, they will be back to inhabiting this present evil age instead of being delivered from it. They will be refusing to become a part of the family of Abraham that is now characterized not by circumcision in the flesh, but a circumcised heart, which comes about through faith in the Messiah and in the God and Father of Jesus who raised him from the dead. How serious is it? Paul uses some strong languages, language in verses 8 and 9. They are perverting the gospel of Christ. Let them be accursed, he says. Cut off from God's people. It's the same, same word that's used in Romans 9. He said, I could wish that I myself were accursed, cut off from Christ. Right? In other words, cut off from God's people. So to be accursed, to be accursed is to be excluded <coughs> from the community. That's what it means. You're out of the community. If you bear the curse, you're taken outside the community and you have no fellowship with the community at all. He says, let them be out. Send them away. Can we see why this is so serious? It is not simply that these people think that we can do good works and, and then merit God's favor by it, as it's sometimes put. Of course we can't, but that's not Paul's point. It is much more fundamental than that. 
those who are perverting the truth are seeking to win the Galatians back into this present evil age and exclude the Galatians from the age to come. By enslaving them to what Christ has died to free the Jews from and what the Gentiles were never intended to submit to in the first place, they would be going backwards into slavery and out of Abraham's family. Don't do it, he says. Don't do it. What shall we say to these things, and why should they even matter to us? First, we must be careful about what defines us. Are we defined by mere external acts, like the circumcision of the Galatians? Are we defined by our choice to keep the law, to observe Sabbath? What defines us? Is it the Messiah, or is it some external act? I've witnessed a growing number of people who, in an attempt to find meaning in their walk with the Lord and achieve a, a relational status superior to us ordinary Christians, they have latched on to a form of Torah observance that defines them. And it defines them. Make no mistake about it. That's what it's about. It's about finding your identity. Do you find your identity in the fact that you keep the Sabbath every, every Saturday? It's about identity. What is to define us? Whether it's Sabbath observance or festival keeping or something else, we must be careful not to let something other than the Messiah define us. What I mean is that our belief in and confession of Jesus' death and resurrection are not only sufficient to bring us into Abraham's family, but they also define us as being in the family. Secondly, what, the, what we are to be defined by is the death and resurrection of Jesus. How do we know in the present who will inhabit the age to come? Simply, we are defined by the death and resurrection of Christ. What is our identity? Can we say with Paul, and this is why he says it, for me to live is Christ. He doesn't say for me to live is to keep the law, right? For me to live is Messiah. That's what defines me. And he's in Christ. This is why he says, in Christ. I do this in Christ. Everything is done in the Messiah because that is where we find our identity. The application of Jesus' death and resurrection to our lives reflects the fact that we are living not in this present evil age, but in the age to come. In other words, when Paul says elsewhere to put on the Messiah, put on Christ, what he means is, Apply the death and resurrection to your lives. It's abstract, I know, but, but think about how this might happen in our own practice. When faced with sin in any variety, we are called to die, right? That's what he says. It's like Put to death, kill those things in you. Why? Because that is putting on the Messiah. You're putting on the death of the Messiah. And from and through that death, God will raise us from the dead. In other words, our life will then reflect, through this putting to death, our life will reflect the resurrection, newness of life, raised to walk in newness of life. I always, when, when I was baptized, uh, I remember, he said it all the time, that's why I remember it. He'd say, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life exactly right and this is to be this is not just a one-time thing this is this is what is to characterize 
characterize us. We are crucified with Christ, he says. Nevertheless, we live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in us, in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and died for us. Right? So that is, that is what his, where his identity is, and that's what it's about. Even if it is abstract, it is actually very practical. We are to manifest the Messiah in his death and resurrection. Christ is all we need. It is he who defines us. And this is the message of Galatians, and we will see how this will unfold throughout the rest of the letter.